0: let's open our hearts afresh in this moment. Father, thank you for your word spoken, your word written, your word whispered to our hearts. We pray together in faith, oh Lord, that you would open your word, you would speak to us, open our eyes, give us understanding and faith together now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Special welcome to those who are joining us uh, on the live stream, we know some of our dear uh, brothers and sisters. James, for example, many others who n- not always able to get here, but uh, join us on live stream, near and far. Welcome, good to have you with us. Okay, we're in the book of Luke this morning, uh, enjoying this journey. And now Luke begins the account of Jesus's public ministry. We remember that he went from. He went down to the Jordan area. He was baptized by John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descended upon him. And by the Spirit, he then went into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil for 40 days. And this is where we pick it up uh, now in Luke 4:14. 4, and then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. So now we, we, we note again, by the power of the Spirit, phrases like that are echoed through the book of Luke. The Spirit descended upon him. He was led by the Spirit. He goes by the power of the Spirit. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, and yielded to the Holy Spirit as he begins his public ministry. And news he's beginning to teach and minister, and news of him And who he is and what he's saying and doing is beginning to be heard. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all or being magnified by all, being honored or esteemed is is the word. And there is an initial popular response. We can only imagine the presence of God that would have been evident when he was speaking, when he was ministering, the anointed one not relying uh, relying beautifully and intimately on the Holy Spirit. People were amazed at his words, his power, his wisdom, all that he said and all that he did. And Luke particularly mentions that in the region of Galilee, there was an initial popularity and favor, but that's not what we find when he goes back to Nazareth, where he grew up, and this is in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And we're reminded of that, that this is the place of his youth. He would have grown up here as a young boy uh, on the the mountain there, uh, through the countryside there. There's lots of biblical history in that region. There's a wonderful viewpoint. You can look from the back of Nazareth and you, you can see down across the Jezreel Valley, where Deborah and Baruch went to battle against the Canaanites, where um, Gideon fought against the Midianites, where Saul lost his life. All of this Old Testament biblical history. You would look to the east across the Jordan. You would look to the west towards the Mediterranean and Carmel. This is all biblical land and territory. This is where Jesus was raised in Nazareth. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the sabbath day now this word custom it's interesting to note, isn't it that jesus's custom was to go to the synagogue each each uh, sabbath day the word custom habit practice manner way commitment this is what he did he regularly attended the synagogue services and the public worship The Greek word, the word synagogue comes from a Greek origin and it means to bring together. Isn't that wonderful? The word synagogue means to bring together. It came to mean the place of assembly. And we have a place of assembly as well, right? We are told in the New Testament in Hebrews 10.25, not giving up meeting together. And interestingly enough, that word is epi synagogue. It's where we get the word synagogue. Not giving up the gathering together, the meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. And there's another habit. Some are in the habit of neglecting drawing together, And Jesus had the habit of regularly going to the assembly. And we are told, don't give up the meeting, the regular gathering together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more that you see the day approaching. This is a good habit, a good conviction, a healthy spiritual discipline in the life of every Christian that we draw near by faith. Sometimes we have to bring ourselves by faith, even against our feelings, even against difficult circumstances, because we understand something. We believe that we could meet with God. We meet with his people. We hear his word. We sit in his presence. That there is an eternal investment that is taking place. That he will be glorified and lifted up in our hearts and minds. So we draw near. The synagogue was where the reading and the instruction of the word would take place. Let me not get ahead of myself. Um, In every town or village, you just needed 10 or more Jewish men, and they would start a synagogue. So many, even the little villages and towns, they would have synagogues. And here in this context, imagine this is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God in the flesh, going into the synagogue, hearing the word inspired by God that referred to him in the fulfillment of him must have been quite something remember at the end after the resurrection when he tells his disciples he opens the scriptures to them and he tells them all that the prophets and Moses have written that speaks of me and when he was sitting in the synagogue hearing the scripture readings knowing that it was referring to him and his coming and his ministry and his person incredible and what happened on this particular day in Nazareth in the synagogue The chief ruler of a synagogue would generally oversee the service. And once people were gathered, he would select certain ones to participate in that service. Often if there was a guest speaker or a rabbi there, he would be invited to read something or say something. And Jesus, as we just mentioned, was becoming a popular teacher and he was invited to say a word. So we read at the end of this verse here, and he stood up to read in the synagogue, you would open the service, there would be um, a benediction, people would repeat the words, there would be the reading of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, you know, um, O hear, O Israel, love the Lord with all your heart, etc. Then it would have been in prayers, various eulogies that would have been repeated, and then the unrolling and the reading from the Torah, from the, from the law and from the prophets. This was the moment when Jesus stood up to read. And he particularly was was asked to read from the prophets. So imagine this moment, Jesus, the anointed one, beginning his public ministry, filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 17, he was handed the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written. The place that he finds is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 in our our Bibles. And the passage was prophesying the ministry of the Messiah. It's important to understand that everyone in that synagogue would have known that. That this passage clearly was predicting that when the Messiah would come, what he would do. And in the beautiful weaving together of circumstances in God's providence Jesus was reading this scripture at this time, in this place, at the inauguration of his own public ministry, reading exactly this descript of the Messiah's ministry. Verse 18, he begins to simply read the text. He reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now this makes contextual sense to us now because we remember he was baptized and the Holy Spirit what came upon him and this is what he reads the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind and liberty to those who are oppressed the spirit of the Lord is upon me Let's, let's uh, look at a few of these phrases. He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What does that mean? Obviously, it's not uh, referring primarily to those who are financially poor, but he's referring to the poverty of the soul or the spirit. When Jesus said, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. It refers to one who sees his need, one who is a person in need. There may be a financial expression of that, but certainly a spiritual bankruptcy recognized in someone's life. In Luke chapter 7, remember when John the Baptist was baptizing? what was the purpose of that baptism? Remember it was a baptism of what? Repentance. It was those who were getting water baptized were basically saying, "I recognize my need for repentance. I recognize I am a sinner, I am spiritually bankrupt and I need mercy and forgiveness." So we read a bit later in Luke, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, and they, as they had been baptized by John. In other words, the baptism of John, being baptized, was outward symbolically acknowledging that inwardly you you saw that you were poor in spirit, that you were a sinner, that you were in need. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves as they had not been baptized by John. So the important recognition in someone's life is to recognize their need Jesus says also in Luke 5.31, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And this was the problem, of course, with the Pharisees. They did not see their need. They felt that they were righteous through their own works and their own lives. They didn't realize that they were sinners in need of mercy. Jesus said, I have come to preach the gospel to the poor. Let's read on in that passage, to heal the brokenhearted. And oh, our hearts get broken in life. Have you experienced that? Have you noticed that? Have you seen that? Our our hearts get broken through relationships and through uh, tragedies and through trials and losing a lost one or sicknesses or our own failures or whatever it may be or our hearts get broken but jesus said one of the reasons that he came is to heal the brokenhearted then he says to proclaim liberty to the captives and again, we, there was an understanding that when the Messiah would come, there would be a physical deliverance, a physical, he would, he would uh, set free the captives. But more than that, deeper than that, he's referring also to spiritual needs of men. In Romans 6, it says that we were slaves to sin, but we have been set free from that. The yoke of bondage is broken through the ministry of Christ in our life. And then again, recovery of sight to the blind. Now again, did Jesus physically restore the sight of the blind? Yes, he did. We read it through the Gospels. But it's also deeper than that. It refers to the spiritual blindness of every man. For example, in John 9.39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Certainly not speaking about physical blindness, right? He's speaking there again in the context of the Pharisees who thought they saw but actually were blind. And Jesus said, I came to give sight to the blind. I remember, in fact, the night I became a believer, June 7th, 1989 at, I don't remember the time, I happen to remember the time and place when I first heard the gospel and I prayed that salvation prayer. And after the prayer, I said to one of the pastors in this little home Bible study, I said, I literally feel as if I was blind and now I can see. And I don't know why I said that or where I heard that, but that's how I felt. And he looked at me and he said, really? He said, yes, of course, that's amazing. And that's how I felt. I felt, as like Paul said, the scales falling from the eyes, seeing and understanding and knowing the truth. And then he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, or some translations say those who are bruised. And again, the Jews, under the Roman Empire, there was a physical oppression, but the spiritual reality of oppression and being bruised through life, Jesus says, I came to set people free. And these are the lives that are redeemed, those who are spiritually bankrupt and poor and blind and bruised and brokenhearted. These are, this is us. This is people that Jesus has found and has restored and forgiven and healed. And and there is a beautiful work, of course, that continues in our life. Now, then he goes on to say in verse Nineteen, he says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or some translations say the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does that mean? It's a strange phrase. Let me explain. There's an allusion here to what's called the year of Jubilee. This was something instituted on the Jewish calendar that every 50 years, there would be a restart. They would hit the restart button. And everyone who had been debt were forgiven their debts. And everyone whose property had been taken, their property would be restored. And everyone who had been taken into slavery, they would be set free. It was forgiveness and freedom and liberty and restoration, the year of Jubilee. There couldn't have been any greater joy in Israel than on that day, on on that 50th year of the year of Jubilee. And Jesus says to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. This day on Israel's calendar foreshadowed the work of the cross and why Jesus came. It was the restart. It was absolute forgiveness offered. It was restoration and forgiveness and a brand new start, making men a brand new creation through Christ. This is why I came, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or another phrase we could say that, the year or the time of grace, when men are acceptable, when men are made acceptable or accepted by God. And then... Verse 20, he closed the book. Now, the reason this is so significant and so profound, and I was surprised to see quite a few commentators not make reference to this. But one of the reasons that this is so profound that at this point he closed the book or rolled up the scroll and then he gave it to the attendant and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him was because he didn't finish the sentence. He stopped short. Everyone knew that passage. The next phrase that he missed off referred to the day of the vengeance of our God. And he didn't read that. And the omission would have been deafening to those who were sitting listening to the scripture reading. And he got to the end of the year of the God's grace, the Lord's favor. And then he rolled the scroll and he sat down and everyone was like, What about the next part, the day of the vengeance of our Lord? And he didn't read that. Now, the reference to the day of the Lord in the Scriptures, the vengeance of our God, it refers to a day of judgment that is coming. We now know, as New Testament believers who sit between the first and the second coming of Christ with an Old and a New Testament, we, with clear perspective, we understand that Jesus came the first time And that was the year of his favor, the age of grace. And he will come the second time and there will be a great expression of judgment when he returns. But they didn't understand that he would be rejected as the Messiah. He would go to the cross. There will be 2,000 years of church age. They didn't understand that. But Jesus' emphasis is not on judgment. It's on grace and mercy and acceptance. That's why Clearly we read that the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him because now the visiting rabbi that would read, after he'd read, he would sit down to explain or to preach, if you will, or to say some words on that which was just read. I love that phrase there, the eyes of all were fixed upon him. The word fixed, it means fastened or stuck to. It means to be attentive. The eyes are stretched is part of the meaning of the word. To set your eyes upon. I love that phrase because I hope and pray and believe that when we gather, that our eyes are set upon him. Our eyes are drawn to him. Our eyes are fixed on him not the pastor or the church or anything else, but our eyes are drawn to him at the end of the service. We say, oh, we've got to look to him to see him afresh this morning. They were waiting to hear what he was going to say after he sat down. So in verse 21, he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now this would have been like a bomb dropping for him to say that. In this context, reading this passage referring to the ministry of the Messiah, there was no doubt at all what he was saying is, I am the Messiah. Everyone would have understood that. He was laying claim to be the predicted Messiah of that passage. So, verse 22 all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. Now, particularly his emphasis on the year of the acceptance of our God and omitting the reference to judgment, saying, highlighting the reason that the Messiah would and in fact has come. It is to heal, it is to bring liberty, it is to set people free. They marveled, they wondered at his gracious words. That's another wonderful phrase, isn't it? To wonder at his gracious words. And don't we do that also? Shouldn't we do that also daily just to wonder at the gracious words that come out of his mouth? We say, I can't believe that he would say that to me. I can't believe he speaks to me that way. That, that grace just, just from his lips spoken into my life is incredible. Oh, May we wonder at his amazing grace every day. Verse 23, and then he said to them, notice at the end there, they said, is this not Joseph's son? Why would they say that? Because this was Nazareth, right? They knew him. He grew up there. They knew the family. It was, they knew who he was. So is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Oh, you will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, and that's a little town or village on the, on the uh, northern northwestern shore of Galilee where he, had, where he had his main ministry. They said, we've heard what you've done in Capernaum. Do it also here. And he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country or town this by the way is the same word accepted where it says the acceptable year of the lord this is the same uh, word it means to be welcome to be accepted but here this prophet jesus of nazareth was not to be accepted in nazareth they may have loved his gracious words and but they were not ready to acknowledge that he was the messiah and certainly familiarity of knowing him after the flesh was a stumbling block to them. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Paul says, therefore from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. And what he's saying there is how we know each other as brothers and sisters in the church is not after our flesh, not after the natural, not after our history, but we know each other after the new creation. And he says in the second part of the verse, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him like that no more. In other words, we may have thought about Jesus of Nazareth in a natural sense, just as a man, or oh, but we don't think of him that way anymore. They saw Joseph's son, and, and he, adjust, he addresses the rejection that was in their heart. Is this not Joseph's son? So he continues in verse 25. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three and a half years. There was a great famine through the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And you maybe remember that story. It's in 1 Kings 19, in the ministry of Elijah the prophet. And he was sent to one particular widow, a Gentile, and um, she came to faith. He gives another example in verse 27, and many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And you remember that story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Incredible story. And Elisha was sent, he he wasn't sent, we don't read the story about him being sent to a leper in Israel, but he was sent to Naaman in Syria. And what is Jesus saying here? He's, He's making a point. He's speaking about those who would, the seeking heart, the heart of faith, those who are believing those who are searching. God sent these prophets to Gentiles, to seeking hearts. That would have been an encouragement to the Gentiles that would read Luke's gospel. We read in Luke uh, 11, let me read this to you. There's a similar passage where Jesus makes a similar reference. While the crowds were thickly gathered together, he began to say, this is an evil generation, it seeks a sign And that's what Nazareth were asking for, remember? And no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah, the prophet. For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. The Queen of the South, or the Queen of Sheba, will rise up in judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. So verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with anger, with wrath. When he put his finger right on the issue in their heart, the familiarity and the pride and the rejection in that moment, and when he made allusion to the fact that all these prophets didn't, work, didn't go to the, the Jews in there. they went to the Gentile, because they were ready to hear, they were looking to hear, they were seeking. <coughs> In other words, saying that their hearts were hard not to receive. So verse 29. And they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. I told you earlier about the viewpoint from the back of Nazareth where you look across the valley and on the top of that viewpoint there's, a, there's a, a monument there with a plaque and it has this Bible verse. It's the noted place where they took Jesus to throw him off the cliff. It's quite a place. And then passing through their midst he went his way. Wow. Wow. Are you looking for a miracle or a sign? He's gone. Show us a sign. And then he abrades them for the hardness of their heart, but at the end they're ready to throw him off. Where did he go? He's gone. He passed through their midst. Wasn't time yet for him to, to die. The hour was not yet. There will be some hours of ministry that were yet to come that we're going to study together through the Gospel of Luke and through the Gospels, where he would choose his disciples, where he would have his public ministry, where he would lay down these incredible principles and teachings for us in our lives and in our, in our Bibles, allowing for these records to be kept. But now, as Jesus said, is the acceptable year of the Lord. When you look at the, time, the biblical timeline of the Old Testament and the New Testament periods and the coming of Christ's first time and his second coming, we are between the two in what's often called the church age or the age of grace or the acceptable time of the Lord. This is our time, the time of grace, the day of salvation. And we are so thankful for his daily grace. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. We thank you how you capture our hearts, how our eyes become fixed upon you, how we wonder at the gracious words that come from your mouth. Oh, we thank you how, you, how wonderfully described uh, is the ministry of the Messiah when you came here to, to forgive, to set free, to heal to open the eyes. Oh, we thank you for your work of redemption in our lives, for the work that you've done in our hearts. And may it continue. Oh, Lord, may you continue to minister, to speak, to set us free, free, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free, we ask. Perhaps as someone listening online this morning, you're not sure of your salvation or even gathered here. Oh, take this moment and bow your heart before the Lord and say, Jesus, save me today, not because I am am worthy or a good person or I am a sinner. I am poor in spirit. I need your grace. Thank you for saving me today by your grace only and through simple faith in responding to you. And lead me in, in the way. Help me, touch me, change me. And help me in a relationship with you, I pray. And for each one of us here today gathered, we thank you for this time. We thank you for every brother here, every sister, each one so precious, each family, each child. Bless bless our families, our children, our marriages, those uh, single parents, those in their older, older years. Oh, give great grace for us as a church here. We ask and pray.